listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, this is our fourth and final episode in our series of educational conversations. What I've kind of been thinking of is January Grief School. We're rounding out the series with an episode I've wanted to do for a long time one talking about the dangers of pathologizing grief. While the term complicated grief has been around for many years, it was only in March of 2022 that prolonged grief disorder became an official diagnosis in the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as the DSM. Since that time, there have been a ton of articles and other podcast interviews talking about the cons and pros of creating a diagnosis for grief. At Ducky Center, we've always been opposed to pathologizing grief for a lot of reasons. And I've held off on doing this episode because there's a lot of controversy about this topic, and I wanted to make sure we talked about it in the right way. Thankfully, my colleague, Dr. Donna Sherman, is extremely well-versed in this arena and has closely followed the move to create a diagnosis for grief. So she was exactly the person I wanted to cover this topic. And Donna's real busy. So it's a privilege to finally have her on to talk about it. Donna's voice is going to be familiar to those of you who listen regularly, as she was just on the episode before last, talking about the importance of becoming grief-informed with Dr. Monique Mitchell. This conversation will give you a good overview of the move to create a diagnosis for grief and what Donna sees as problematic about that. But there's no way we can get into all the details in such a short period of time. So if you want to learn more, be sure to sign up for Donna's upcoming webinar, Flawed Foundations, Deconstructing Three Contemporary Grief Constructs. It's happening on Thursday, February 8th, 2024, from 10 to 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time. You can sign up at our website, dougy.org. Okay, here's my conversation with Donna. Donna, welcome back to Grief Out Loud. What a a privilege for me. I get to talk to you twice in one month. Oh, thank you, Jana. And for listeners who didn't catch your last episode when we talked about, you know, the importance of being and becoming grief informed, could you introduce yourself both as a professional in this world, but also as a, a human, a person who is also grieving? Oh, right. There are those both things, aren't there? (laughs) Well, I have been privileged to be involved with Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families, actually since 1986, when I became a volunteer facilitator with our founder, Bev Chapel, in the newly started Healing After a Suicide Death group. And in 1991, I joined the staff and was the executive director for 25 years. And for since hiring our wonderful executive director, Brennan Wood, I've been privileged to be in a role we titled Senior Director of Advocacy and Education, 
where I really get to focus more of my time on training, writing, and representation education around the issues that impact children and their families who are grieving a death. On a personal level, I'll just say relevant to this topic, other than I always love to say my favorite people to hang out with are usually two and three-year-olds. And uh, this is not related to that, but I do love to get away and camp and ride my Harley and kayak. On a more personal level, I had experienced during the pandemic the death of my mother in November of 2020. I was not able to be there with her. Uh, she died in Baltimore. And six months later to the day, my brother died in Atlanta of COVID in 2021. So although you and I have been in this field for many, many years, it does not absolve us from also experiencing the loss and grief that comes with the deaths of friends and family members. So we're all grieving. If anybody who's listening has not yet experienced a death of someone in their lives, uh, it, it's coming. You know, Don, I'm struck. You know, I've known you my whole time at Dougie Center, my 22 years. You've been a very big part of my experience. And as you were talking just now, it struck me like you've been in this field, you've been in this role at Dougie Center, well, various roles at Dougie Center for decades. And then to have two people in your immediate family die in such close proximity so late in, well, late in your career, you know, advanced time in your career. Uh, and so just, I'm, I'm curious if, if there's anything about that experience of having so many years of experience of being with families who are grieving, teaching people about being with families who are grieving, and then to have your own experience. Good question, Jana. I think really what's helped me in my career around this is I don't feel like I have to go through all of the questions that a lot of that we hear from a lot of people like am I doing this right? What if I'm not angry? Did I miss a step or a stage or a task or a I I have the ability to just notice notice what I'm feeling, notice what I'm wondering about. I think another really important piece is and I learned this from listening to stories of regret and I wish we hadn't had a fight. That was the last time I saw them. It has empowered me over the years to stay current on my relationships, to work harder at keeping them current. And yes, of course, things happen. But I can honestly say I, I really didn't have unfinished business with my mother or my brother. That We didn't always agree, of course, about things. But I don't have regrets of what I wish I had done or said. I told them I loved them. I, we had, in those ways, positive parting. In my life, I think about it as making deposits in the no regret savings account, knowing that there's always going to be a regrets checking account, but I just hope that there's more in the <laughs> savings account of the no regrets to help balance it out for me. Yeah, I love that. I love that. 
Well, thanks, Donna, for going down a little bit of a personal path with me, um, just for listeners to kind of connect with you both on that professional level, but also as somebody who is grieving in the world as a human. And I know today we're really going to delve into a topic I've wanted to talk to you about since March of 2022, when prolonged grief disorder made it into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual hyphen text revision hyphen five. (laughs) So back in March 2022. And we knew it was coming for a long time. Uh, and I'm curious, I, I know why I'm passionate about this topic, but what makes you passionate about this topic? Well, let me just say, first of all, I, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders published by the American Psychiatric Association is sometimes referred to as the Bible of psychiatry. Not everybody loves that connotation, but it certainly is often used for diagnosing and for actually for labeling people with a number of a diagnostic category, often so that they can get insurance reimbursement. And it's a compendium of symptoms of named diagnoses that groups of people have agreed upon. So it's a it's a social construct, all of them in there. And if you take prolonged grief disorder, for example, there were many years where there's a controversy, will it be called complicated grief or will it be called prolonged grief disorder? And there were varying themes and ultimately it was decided to call it prolonged grief disorder, which I find very curious because Complicated grief, to me, encapsulates grief. Grief is complicated because people are complicated. Relationships are complicated. And when someone dies, there are complexities and complications around that. So I think grief is inherently complicated. When we talk about the terminology of prolonged grief disorder, right away we're saying prolonged, which means you're taking too long. And I think it begs the question, according to who? Who says this? Who's making these things up and agreeing to them? Because they aren't scientific entities. They're social constructs. And prolonged grief disorder, well, the whole DSM is a pathology model. It asks people in positions of power who are therapists and people who can have the power to tell other people what they have decided they have as the social construct. And they are decided by agreement, not because of real scientific basis of them. So it's a pathology model. Every diagnosis in the ever-expanding DSM has symptoms. So here are all the things that are wrong with you. Check these boxes. If four out of eight of them are symptoms you have, then you have this thing. The field of traumatology, for example, years ago moved from saying what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And we're not doing that in the right way because grief is often thought of by people and actually defined by a lot of, if you do a deep dive on the word grief, which I've 
been doing really deep American Psychological Association, American Psychiatric Association, some of our government sites, the emphasis is on emotions. So grief are the emotions we feel when someone dies or when we are bereaved because of some other loss. And it's so short-sighted. It's one of my problems with the DSM, which is a compendium of mental disorders. In other words, saying the problem is in your mental head. And we know that a death happens within a social context. So yes, there's how I feel about it. There's how my family, whether chosen family, biological family, how they respond to me, how they respond to the death. Then there's the community I'm in. Are people supportive of me or do they disappear? Or are they placating me with all kinds of pat answers? And then there's the larger society of people who are consistently marginalized in their communities. For example, when uh, someone who identifies as African-American or Black is murdered by a police officer, it impacts the entire African-American Black community, whether they actually knew the person or not, because some of those issues become systemic issues. And so it's a very narrow, medically-based model for something that is a human experience, grief, grieving over the death of someone in your life that you cared about, and making it into a pathology that needs treatment because there's something wrong in your mentally disordered. I feel like you got into this a little bit uh, with talking about how we got to prolonged grief disorder. Is there anything else you'd add just kind of about the short history of kind of the factors that play into the wish to create this prolonged grief disorder? Well, one of the things, I mean, it goes way, way back if you look at all the times the DSM is now in its fifth text revised edition, and I, I don't have time to go into the history of the DSM. But I will say, I believe that mostly well-intentioned people back in the mid-maybe 90s said, how do we help people, how do we best help people who are really struggling after a death, who can't get their feet back on the ground, who maybe literally can't get out of bed, can't go back to work, can't function, who want help, and we don't really know who they are or exactly how to help them. In 1999, a group of people developed a inventory called the Inventory of Complicated Grief. It's a 19-question inventory. It's still being used, but the problem with it, one of the problems is it was based on white educated widows in their average age in their 60s who'd been married for 30 or 40 years in San Diego County. And so you can't generalize from that population. It's still being used, Jana, for populations for which it, it does not apply. And one of the proponents of it, one of the developers, Holly Priggerson, was quoted in an article not very long ago, I think it was uh, 2016, saying, 
we really ought to revisit that and see if it's still applicable to other populations. Well, that was 1999. We've learned a lot over those years, and it's still being used as if it's some sort of gold standard of how to evaluate whether someone is suffering. And then over the years, there have been various work groups looking at it. In the DSM-5, which came out in 2012, groups were looking at what those symptoms might be, and it was it was given a name called uh, persistent bereavement-related disorder. And I think they didn't want to use complicated grief or prolonged grief disorder, so they made up this kind of hybrid name, and it was in the DSM as a uh, condition for further study. But if you already set the parameters for something and then you study it, you can utilize that information for whatever outcome you want. And my concern is people who are grieving are being labeled with a pathology and those are not innocent labels. Those labels can follow people. They can be used against people in custody battles. They can be used to increase life insurance payments. Uh, they're not bland, neutral terms. And I think they also lead people to believe, I must not be doing this right, this grief thing. And one of the aspects that it talks about in the symptomology is making, unless the whatever your behavior is, is part of the norm of your society. And we know that one of the norms of our mainstream American society is maybe you get three paid days off of work if you work a job that provides you that benefit because we know there are people who are working three part-time jobs just trying to get by who don't have access to time off or insurance or many of the benefits others have. And then everybody expects you to go back to work and be okay. And and if that's a social norm, that's a wrong social norm. <laughs> it's distorted. That's not how grief works. Oh, it makes it brings up the question around timelines for me, because I think one of the the key factors in the prolonged grief disorder, as it's outlined in the DSM, is that, you know, there's these various symptoms, the longing, the yearning, the avoiding reminders of uh, challenges with everyday functioning. And there's a timeline on it. And so that means after a year for adults, and after six months for children. And I was curious what your thoughts are around maybe the, the difference between a year for adults and six months for kids and like maybe how people landed on those timelines because they feel so kind of arbitrary. To me, they feed more misconceptions about grief and what should or shouldn't be the course of a person's grief following the death of someone in their lives. And as we know, an individual may have the death of a parent, a sibling, a dear friend, and may react differently to all of those. So first of all, to put this sort of, as you say, arbitrary one-year time frame 
leads people to believe in a year, you should be better. You should be somewhere different than you are now. And I think that's wrong. I think it's a misconception. And if you took something like yearning, for example, or avoiding reminders of the person, it may be I'm avoiding going to this restaurant because we had so many lovely memories there. I can't bear to be in there. Well, there's nothing wrong or distorted or pathological about that. And I understand if someone is incapable of functioning, and and I'm not saying that everyone will be just fine with no support. I'm very much in favor of qualified therapy and counseling for people. I'm not opposed I'm opposed to bad therapy and bad counseling. But I would say the idea that in one year, when you've gone through, for example, all the anniversaries, all the holidays, all the birthdays, somehow magically things should be better. We hear many people say the second year is worse, is much worse than the first. And in terms of children, I think what they say, and I don't see the proof for this, but the advocates of this say, it helps us predict who's going to have problems down the line. If we can see all these things happening at six months. And another thing, Janin, the all of the symptoms that are listed under prolonged grief disorder, all of the proponents of prolonged grief disorder say, admit, these are normal responses. These are natural, normal responses. So what's the difference then? The time frame, the duration, or the intensity? And I have yet to hear a parent who's had a child die not still be grieving deeply that death, no matter how long it has been since that child died, as one example. And to be told, you need to stop yearning, you need to stop avoiding, you need to accept the reality of this. According to who? Those terms always strike me as very uh, abstract. Like I'm not clear on how to measure yearning, and I'm not clear <laughs> on how to measure accept the reality of the death. Because I always come from the place of like, do you, know, do you know your person has died? Yes. Okay. Then I'm pretty sure you are acclimated to the reality that your person has died. And then acceptance is such a, I don't know, it's kind of a fluffy word. Like, I don't really know what that means. Exactly. So does accept the reality of the death mean, do you understand that the person is dead? Is that what it means? I don't think so. What they mean is you need to accept it. And I've had lots of bereaved parents say, I know my son is dead. I'm never going to accept that. So there's a lot of ifs around how language is, is used and understood. And if you go back to yearning, one of the problems that's happening now in terms of prolonged grief disorder being a viable diagnosis for therapists, counselors to utilize is now there's a, a study happening based on the idea that 
people become addicted to their grief, that they will not let the memory of the deceased person, you know, fade or go away, that they're addicted to their grief and they are testing a drug called naltrexone, which is a drug that is used for addiction to help people cut the social connection that they have for alcohol, cocaine, uh, specifically. And what allegedly this naltrexone does is it's it interferes with your interest in social connections. And so the idea that you are addicted to your your grief is an addiction and you won't let the memory of the person go and it's interfering with your life. And so we're going to help you by giving you a drug that cuts your interest in social connections, but it's indiscriminate. It's like, and what do we need more when we're grieving than social connections and social support and the care and support of others? To me, it's gobsmacking <laughs> it's just i i can't wrap my my head around and it, and it's very concerning very concerning to me so then i'm going to ask you a really hard question because i think it's always important in these conversations it's, it's pretty clear right that there's a concern you're concerned about the dangers of pathologizing grief with this diagnosis moving forward and also, wh what do you see as some of the the positives or the pros of having an actual grief-related, grief-specific diagnosis in the DSM? Well, the pros that are put out there, and I do see some of this, one of them is that insurance is more likely to cover treatment. So if you have this diagnosis, your insurance, if you have it, again, and who doesn't have it is more marginalized communities, people who don't have access to health insurance, which is a whole other issue of equity. But if you have it, then insurance is more likely to cover it. I think some people will be relieved to know that what they're experiencing and perhaps suffering has a name and is a thing, and in some way that legitimizes their their experience. I think also that it may help provide more research funds into the whole area of once you have a legitimized diagnosis, National Institute of Health and other funding sources are more likely to provide uh, treatment. So th those are ones that I think usually often get promoted as things that can be helpful. Which when you say it in that way, Donna, it makes me think that having a diagnosis that will that pathologizes specific particular grief reactions and responses is a way of adapting to a system that is not set up to support people who are grieving. So we have the system, health insurance system, mon monetary reimbursement system, 
getting time off of work system, all these things. And like, that's not working very well. So how do we do something within that system that's not working very well to try to carve out at least a little bit of space for people who are grieving to get support? Yes, I I agree. However, and I think this is one of the pros that is put out there is having a diagnosis will also help more therapists, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists become educated around grief. But then it begs the question, who's educating them and what are they educating them about? Are we just further expanding the pathology model? And I would say, yes, we are. And I don't think that that is what is ultimately helping people. So you're right. The system is messed up. I don't know any practitioners, and I can say any because I, I I do trainings. I just did a training with one of my colleagues in California for 50 school counselors and school psychologists, 47 of whom this training on supporting youth who are grieving in the school system, 47 out of 50, it was their first training ever on loss and grief related to death. So they all have master's degrees or doctorates in helping professions as school counselors and school psychologists, and they don't have training in that. Will they, you know, they were delighted with the training, but again, we're not pathologizing people who are grieving, students who are grieving. Their behavior, which can sometimes be troubling, may be a result of what's not happening for them in terms of the support and understanding they need based on who was murdered in their life, who they took care of, who was dying of cancer for two years. I mean, again, that social context, cultural context, is often absent in the mental disorder diagnoses. Donna, this might be outside kind of your realm of knowledge and expertise. So you can just say no thanks to this question if you want to. But I'm wondering, you know, prior to March of 2022, when prolonged grief disorder was available for therapists and counselors and psychologists to say, here's this diagnosis, we can, you know, get insurance reimbursement for this time that we're spending together. This diagnosis will help inform, you know, the treatment that I'm going to offer to you. Prior to that, if someone had had someone die and they were needing additional support, and they went to a therapist or a counselor, you know, some of the diagnoses that were available maybe were major depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you have a sense of like, if you go in now and you receive the prolonged grief disorder, what's different about how a therapist or a counselor is going to approach working with you than if you'd come in with all the same scenarios that you were struggling with prior to March of 2022? I think that's a great question. I would hope that the exploration would be around what you're experiencing as a result of the death of this person or persons. And I would hope that, and less around how do we stop you from feeling depressed? How do we help you not have post-traumatic stress disorder, symptomology. Now, I don't know that that's the case. And I don't believe that 
enough therapists are trained adequately on being grief informed in order to address those issues. I think time will tell to some degree, but I will say this, Jana, despite all of the emphasis we have as a as a country, and I know there are people outside of the the United States who are also listening, but let me just say in the United States and North America, our rates of depression are increasing and have been increasing despite national efforts to address depression, despite drugs that are marketed. You open People Magazine today, you're going to get an eight pages of antidepressant ads. And if it was any other pill, any other disease, and the rates were increasing, we would be saying, well, I don't think that pill's working. I don't think that treatment is working. So I don't understand how it is that we can keep saying we're putting more money, more marketing, more drugs out there, and more people are suicidal, more people are depressed. And I think a lot of it is because we're not looking at the social context enough. We're looking in isolation that that depression, for example, depression after the death of someone, I'll say specifically, is in your head. And, and your depression may be related to a society that doesn't know how to support you. It may be that nobody invites you out anymore because you're a downer, or you're not part of a couple now, or they think that, and I've had a lot of bereaved parents, I've been involved for many years with compassionate friends, and I've had many, many parents say, it's almost like people think having a child die is contagious. I, I've heard so many people say, I literally see someone in the grocery store, they see me, I see that they see me, and they suddenly become very interested in a can of green beans. And I understand that it's because they don't know what to say to me. And then they turn and go the other way. And we live in a society where people don't know what to say and want you to feel better and all of those pressures to get back and perform and go to your job and be a great parent. And while well, meanwhile, your entire world may have crumbled and everything in it is different. And you're trying to get your equilibrium back. And I would say, in many cases, it isn't the person who has a pathology, it's the society that has a, an aversion to understanding and helping people who are grieving. You know, we've been really focused on prolonged grief disorder, making it into the DSM-5 back in 2022. Are there other ways that you see kind of the systems or, you know, I always want to say the powers that be, but I don't know who those folks are, but just like the system and the world, this move towards pathologizing grief? Well, the powers that be are the American Psychiatric Association and the DSM and any all of the pharmaceutical industry, which, you know, honestly, if they can develop a drug that is marketed to grieving people, what a population that opens for them. Um, there's other interests. There's insurance interests. There's 
marketing interests, there's psychiatry, psychology interests that that have a stake in how this all folds out, how this all unfolds. And I do think there will be backlash. And even when the DSM-5 came out, Thomas Insel, who was the head of the National Institute of Health at that time, said, we're at the National Institute of Health, we're going to be moving to a different system of looking at research, uh, research domain, ways of providing funding for research. We're, we're, we're going to be moving away from the DSM. And a lot of other countries use the ICD, the International uh, something for diseases, which has some overlap with the DSM. But of course, the American Psychiatric Association wants a hold on it. They make money, a lot of money from it. It keeps them in power as an, as an organization and as professionals. And so there are a lot of different interests at stake. And I will say, there's a lot of movement now to validate lived experiences. A lot of organizations starting with people who have been diagnosed, for example, with mental illnesses, mental disorder, to say, wait a minute here. Maybe my reaction to what has happened to me is a coping mechanism in a really challenging situation. And I don't want to be pathologized for that. So I think there will be increasing backlash in terms of not pathologizing people for a universal experience, which is grief. Do you have any other hopes or optimism about <laughs> where, where the system could go instead? Well, I think the system of the DSM is challenging on so many different levels. I just want to add one other thing. So for example, you cannot get insurance reimbursement if you go in and you're having couple counseling. Like we are having trouble as a couple, which is a very common theme for people going to seek help from uh, spiritual leaders or professionals. But there's no insurance reimbursement for that. So I know a lot of mental health professionals who will say, well, who has the better insurance or who has insurance at all? Well, it's not coverable under this, but here are some other things we could call it in order for you to have insurance reimbursement. And that kind of horse trading happens all the time in diagnostic and statistical manual diagnoses that people are making. One... And before I say anything about where I see positive things, I want to just mention one other concerning thing. There's a company out of California that is developing through AI ways, and they market it, that you, you never have to say goodbye to someone who has died. That One of their goals is to take away the emotion of grief to get rid of the emotion of grief. So what you do is you sign up and pay them as a person who is living to have, when you die, your 
persona lives on and your people who want to stay in contact with you can still do so. So they never have to say goodbye and they don't have to grieve because they can still communicate with you. Now, I'm sure there are people who will like that, who may benefit from that, but marketing it that you never have to say goodbye and that we want to eliminate the emotion of grief are very concerning to me. What are the positive things? Well, a lot of positives. Our network of centers and programs throughout the United States into Canada, Canada and other countries who are looking at how do we develop services specifically for children and families is growing and flourishing. And I can tell you that when Dougie Center started in 1982, we were the first one. And there's now hundreds of them. And they're doing support groups for children. They're not, by and large, pathologizing people. They're providing avenues for peer support so people know they're not alone. The National Alliance for Children's Grief is growing and flourishing, and we want to keep adding more services and programs and people who are interested in supporting them. We have a campaign at Dougie Center called Understand Grief, and it's trying to help people become not just trauma-informed, but grief-informed. We have a short version of a 40-page paper that my colleague Monique Mitchell and I authored around what some of the misconceptions are around grief and what's the some of the principles and tenets of a grief-informed model look like, which are all available on our website. And, and we're not alone. For example, there are people, Joanne Cacciatore is one very strong advocate. The editor of the DSM-4, Alan Francis, psychiatrist, is vehemently opposed to having a grief diagnosis in the DSM. And he was, you know, the editor of the DSM-4. So it's not just little Dougie Center or here and there people. There is a movement, and I hope people will use their lived experience and their experience in listening to other people to really counter the pathology mental disorder model. Donna, you really highlighted that one of the things we can do is to continue to educate ourselves. And there's an opportunity coming up to learn more. You're doing a webinar on February 8th, 2024 on this topic. So for folks who are interested, could you say a little bit more about that opportunity? It's a deeper dive, Jana, into some of the history and some of the challenges of what, where this came from and what the implications are. So I would invite anybody who's interested in that. You don't have to be a professional in this field to be interested uh, but it is a deeper dive into what are some of those inventories? What are some, where did these come from? What are the flaws in them? And how are they being misused with people who are grieving? And, and who's left out? 
I think that's an important part of things. Who are we not reaching in terms of this pathology model? And who's pathologizing whom? So those are really big issues because the DSM and even prolonged grief disorder is a model that came from a pretty small number of psychologists, psychiatrists, primarily white, many of whom received funding from the pharmaceutical industry, and how applicable is the whole DSM model or prolonged grief disorder to marginalized communities who are suffering higher rates of death. We know that in the Black African American community, in the uh, gay lesbian community, marginalized, marginalized youth, marginalized adults, marginalized communities. And how applicable are these kinds of inventories that were developed 25 years ago from populations and samples that don't reflect other communities? Well, listeners, if you want to attend Donna's webinar happening on February 8th, 2024, head over to our website, dougy.org, to sign up. Well, Donna, thank you again for making time in your schedule to be part of Grief Out Loud. Like I said, twice in one month, it feels like quite the win on our part. So I'm really grateful for your time, your knowledge, your research, and your, and your passion around this topic. Thank you, Jana. I love to use any opportunity I have to speak on this particular topic that I hope you can see I am extremely passionate about. And listeners out there, thank you for taking time to tune in, for taking in this information, for sharing with people who might be helped by it. We are really grateful for you making the show mean what it does. As always, you can reach out to me directly at griefoutloud at dougie.org. Again, that's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. It's our main website where you'll find free downloadable uh, activities, tip sheets, the um, papers that Donna mentioned about the our Becoming Grief Informed and our 10 Core Principles of Grief Informed Practice. You can find those there, along with each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. Excited as always to share that the podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stefan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time.